Welcome to Park Spark, the podcast of the Florida Recreation and Park Association. We're here to talk about all the ways it starts in parks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Park Spark. I'm your guest host, Eleanor Warmack, Executive Director of the Florida Recreation and Park Association. And with me today are Don Decker, City Manager for the City of Weston, Tony Lopez, Deputy Town Manager for the Town of Miami Lakes, Gina Peoples, Assistant County Manager for Alachua County, and T. Michael Stavers, Assistant City Manager for the City of Winter Haven, all former Parks and Recreation Directors from the state of Florida. We've asked our panelists to join us in conversation about moving from the parks and recreation world into that executive level leadership position within their city, county, or town. Don, Tony, Gina, and T. Michael, we are thrilled to have you with us today. And we are going to jump right in because we have so much to cover and our listeners will want to hear it all from you. Each of you all has served previously as a director of a parks and recreation department. What made you want to take that leap into the position that you now hold? Don, let's start with you. All right. Thanks, Eleanor. Appreciate having you. It's nice to be with my esteemed colleagues. About two and a half years ago, Weston's only city manager announced he was going to retire. And while we all knew it was coming and we all kind of wondered what would happen when, it sort of left us reeling like, okay, now we need to act. And and really, I've been in Weston now, it had been 18 years when that announcement was made. And I, I felt like I had a vested interest in the community and I had a vested interest in the future of the community. Uh, had the chosen somebody from outside the organization in to become the city manager, I was concerned that what made Weston special and unique might get lost with, with new outside leadership. Several other internal candidates felt the same way. So several of us put our name in the hat. Um, really why I want to do it is I wanted to protect that which I helped build over 18 years. And I wanted to have some control over my own destiny. Uh, well, not that I was worried about being fired, but I wanted to have some say in the future of the city. Um, and then finally, I really wanted to see if my sensibilities as a leader translated to the city manager's office. I felt like I had done good things in parks and recreation, good relationships in the community. And I wanted to see if that would translate into being able to lead the organization. Great. Tony. Yeah. And, and me, I think a very similar in a very similar tone as Don, I've been in my community for about 16 years and um, have had a great passion for it. And for me, it really just stems from one of my main drivers in public service, which came from working in parks and that's impacting people and impacting people more importantly in a, in a positive way. Uh, and a lot of that comes from, uh, you know, we're in a, in a, in a experience making business in parks. That's what, the way I like to, to say it is we're in a, in a, we like to help people uh, create memorable experiences through the services that we provide. And in my current role as a deputy, I have the opportunity to work with, with other departments to expand upon that impact that came from parks and share that same line of thinking um, helping other departments realize that we're, we're here to create experiences for our communities uh, and ultimately that desire to make a bigger impact uh, in the community is what led me to take that next step. 
I think, as has already been relayed by my colleagues, that we all just have a servant's heart. We want to give back to our communities. I have a passion for making things better. And in Parks and Rec, I had been in my department for nearly 15 years. It was a well-oiled machine. I knew history of all of our parks. It was it was just time to make the leap and uh, start to contribute on a on a bigger, more global level. So it was an opportunity that was presented to me, and I just really jumped at the opportunity to to apply for a different position and was given the opportunity to do it. And I'm really grateful because I now have. I, I've built more relationships with people and, um, you know, I think we'll be talking about it more in just a little bit about uh, how our parks and rec experience really helps us be successful in our current roles, but really parks is the foundation for future leadership opportunities. So I'm, I'm super excited about uh, getting to talk to, to all of my friends and colleagues today and also just share some insight with all of our listeners. Hey guys. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to call foul on all y'all because you got this great attitude about it. I knew exactly what I wanted to do and I had a servant's heart and, you know, I chased that dream. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take, take it a little different approach. Um, I've been in Winter Haven 20 years. I, actually, I've been in Winter Haven since 1978. Um, and uh, we talk about luck and, and that definition of luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And um, so many times in, in what we do in parks and recreation, it's we've got this, we got that servant's heart, but we got a lot of humility. You know, we're, we're, we're the most humble, you know, soft-spoken people when it comes to carrying our own flags. And sometimes somebody has to push you in that direction. And, and Eleanor, for me, that's what it was. I mean, I was parks and recreation director, leisure services director. And um, I had a, a city manager come to me and say, hey, you know, you guys are you're doing some good stuff there. Um, we want you to, we want to add another department up underneath you and make you something more than what you are and see if those principles of parks and recreation, how they transfer. And it was, it was an opportunity and it was being prepared for the opportunity. It wasn't something that I went out and said, Hey, I want to take on, you know, everything dealing with public works and make it part of this department. It was, this is not working real good. Let's see what you guys can do with it. And you go out and you prove yourself. And then, you know, the next opportunity was what else can we apply those transferable, scalable talents to? And um, it was never chasing something that was there. It was being prepared for when the opportunity to create something new came along. Um, and and, I, and one thing I will say that's consistent with what, what my, my esteemed colleagues have said this morning is that... Um, it's really about the people, the human skills, the problem solving skills, and being able to take that from a rec center to a special event to a commission chambers or a heated community meeting um, or dealing with crisis or organizing in response to natural disasters. Those inherent skills that our, our parks and recreation people have are so valuable. So that's just my take on it. I'm just keeping it real. <laughs> that is a great lead in to the next part of our conversation. Um, because Michael, I think you hit it the nail on the head, regardless of what position is heading to next. It's all about being prepared for when that lucky moment 
presents itself? Um, and have you done the personal preparation that you need to make that move? Not always about waiting for a job to be open. Sometimes you're asked to step into that position um, for a period of time or even permanently. So that kind of leads me to the next question that I wanted to ask everybody. Now in your new role, what, what's the most challenging part of your current position and how do you really think the time that you spent in parks and recreation prepared you for those challenges? Um, and we're going to start with Tony on this one. So, yeah, for me, I guess one of the most challenging aspects is, is this balancing kind of these larger community priorities with what each department needs. Uh, and keeping them kind of focused on that big picture and helping them not lose that focus while dealing with these day-to-day fires. And I think us as parks directors, um, having that experience, we were, we, we were dealing really with day-to-day fires, and, and we do that on a regular basis all the time. And I like to say that in parks, we're, we're the one department that has a little piece of every other department in it. Um, from we're responsible from for the public safety in our parks all the way down to managing the day-to-day operations and financial management of, of, of our departments. So I like to tell you, tell our departments let's let's look at a um, you know a new park or a capital improvement project and one of the biggest things that I think uh, the parks background has has provided uh, to me is we're really trained to bring people together around forming a collective vision. And I think that's helped immensely in building consensus, especially across departments in my community. I really think the most challenging part of my current position is personnel issues. Um, I'm so Pollyanna that I think everybody is so nice and they come to work and they do their job and they go home at the end of their shift. And that's not always the case. And so I think uh, being more uh, in the position that I'm in, I have the opportunity to see the underbelly of what goes on and uh, sometimes have to participate as like a hearing officer. And you never want to be the one that says, I'm sorry, we're taking away your job from you. And you don't have the ability to pay your mortgage and feed your family and those types of things. So honestly, that's the most challenging part um, that causes the most stress. And then the other thing too, is just standing behind the, the podium during a board meeting. You just never know where the citizens' comments are going to come from or the political winds are blowing. And so sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge too. So you've got to make sure that you fully understand what it is that you're presenting on and anticipate different questions just so you are the most prepared. And of course, if if they do ask a question or there is some surprise, there's no shame at all in saying, you know what, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that and just follow up the next day. No, Eleanor, um, in Winterhaven, I'd say for us, the, the challenge is... Let me let me talk about it like on the on the grand scheme. So I think the challenge is the same as it ever was in parks and recreation is how do you most effectively communicate the story? Whether you're talking about the need for a new bond issue, you're talking about the need for a new park or more staff or whatever the, the priority is of the day. Um, how do you best tell the story to get the buy in from the elected body? and from the, uh, the constituency that's gonna pay for it at the end of the day. That's always, to me, been the challenge. How do we encapsulate the benefit, the impact, 
um, the cost, the return on investment, and put that in a consumable way, not in our jargon, not using our bureaucratic language, but in the everyday uh, language that the citizens can understand and buy into. That's, I don't think that that really ever changes. The, the other issue or the other challenge that's today, um, and I can't say that my parks and recreation background helped me, and I would think that you know, the four of us on this call and anybody else in this world would say the exact same thing, is how do we respond to the, these impacts of a pandemic? Gina mentioned personnel. You know, how many of us are having to figure out how to staff differently? how to deliver services differently, how to engage our citizens differently, how to um, manage limited resources, yet still respond to the same high level of expectation. Um, and then you run into a situation as we are today where knock on wood here, the day we're recording this, we're seeing declines in positivity rates. And so we're getting back to a ramped up uh, re-engagement of the community and the service levels, yet it's picking up faster than we've been able to pick back up our own delivery momentum. So that expectation is back to, all right, we're ready. We're the citizens. Let's, let's have it all back. Let's go at 100%. Yet this machine does not start back up that quickly. So again, how do you tell that story? So I think that communication piece, and we keep going back to it, Human engagement, uh, ability to, to relate on a personal level. I think that's probably the skill that helps address a lot of the challenges today. So I was going to simplify the answer and say going from one boss who I can never satisfy to five bosses who I have difficult time satisfying is a challenge. <laughs> um, that, is, that is humorous, but it is also very true. And I think it's made more complicated by today's uh, political strife, um, what we're seeing nationally and in state politics in terms of divisiveness, I'm seeing more and more every day at local politics. I think the local politicians are looking at what's happening in state and national politics and how people are campaigning and how people are using wedge issues to divide. And they're seeing that as a mechanism by which for them to accomplish things here locally, whether it's running for and winning an, a uh, an office or whether it's positioning themselves on topics. It's like they've taken that model that's been created over the last, not just the last four years, I think the last decade or so, and they're bringing into local politics. And it's a challenge because I know behind closed doors, they see the right answer. They see the right approach. They, they know the right decision. But then publicly, they go out and they position themselves completely differently because of whatever uh, goal they're trying to achieve to position themselves within whatever party. And I, and I would say that is an equal problem on both sides of the uh, political aisle. I see that just as much with liberals as I do with conservatives. And, and so that is a challenge because it used to be that local government was where we sort of put aside some of those, those um, political leanings. But I, I think that that door might be closed forevermore. And that's unfortunate. It's going to make all of our jobs much more difficult in the future. Hey, Don, That's I some great dialogue. And I think what I heard from bits and pieces of what you all were saying was just the ability to tell the story using the organic 
um, benefit of being in parks and recreation that we have those bits and pieces of all of those community service sectors. So it's easy for us to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together, um, but being cognizant and aware of the need to build consensus and understand politics, whether you want to or not, right, wrong, or indifferent, it is part of the nature of the business that we're in. And then just developing that critical thinking skill um, to be able to apply that for those situations that you can't possibly prepare for, like a COVID pandemic. Michael, I think you had something to add. Yeah, I just, um, I want to, on Don's comment, I think it's spot on because, you know, just in the public administration realm in general right now, you know, people, they, they form their opinions based upon uh, issues at the federal level or even at the state level, but their capacity to act at those levels is so uh, marginalized that they choose to act out those opinions now more so at the local level. So, you know, I think if you look at the the trust and the respect that the constituents have for local government is still very high. The problem is their engagement with us is not based upon their trust and in, in, in respect for local governments based upon their opinion and their lack of trust in the federal government. And we just end up being the point of impact. And that's a that's a hard thing to manage, not just in in the administrative side, but in every single department that comes across. And I'm sure our parks and recreation departments feel the same thing, particularly when it comes to special events and political rallies that happen in our facilities. Those are a whole different monster today than they were 10 years ago. It's a great point and a good lead into the next uh, kind of conversation I wanted to ask you all about is you've all been in the seat of being a director of a parks and recreation department and uh, by probably every day, every week on that job, you had that request that came to you from somebody um, to do something that might have been outside your normal direct mission of your department. Um, We've always said, of course, in Parks and Recreation, that if the powers that be want to give something to someone and know that it's going to be done and done well, then they give it to Parks and Recreation. Maybe because of what Tony said earlier, that uh, we have experience managing all of the pieces that are out there. Maybe not. I want each one of you all to share with us why you think it's natural for leadership in a city, county, or town to really kind of look to parks and recreation for those unusual assignments. Um, and Gina, let's start with you on this one. I think parks professionals are creative. They've got positive attitudes. They have seen a lot. They do a lot. So again, as Tony had mentioned, um, we have solid waste experience. We have animal control experience. We have road project experience, uh, customer service experience from little kids all the way up to seniors. So we have a uh, ability to communicate with folks at all levels and really are able to relate to them. And oftentimes we are given these assignments at the last minute and we have proven time and time again that we get it done. And it seems frivolously, but, uh, we just have a can-do attitude, and everybody knows you can always count on the parks professional to get things done. Gina, that's a, a 
good point there. I think that there's this capacity to get things done um, for a variety of reasons. I think the thing that stands out most to me, and, and certainly in, in Winter Haven's case, this I think still is the case with Julie Adams as our Parks and Recreation Director, um, who's doing a phenomenal job, by the way, um, is it comes down to relationships that in Parks and Recreation and Leisure Services, our workforce develops relationships with people in the most positive environment that there is. So they get to know their kids, they get to know their parents, they get to know their likes and their dislikes and you know what gets them excited. And when you're dealing with a community issue per se, um, and you want to know who the movers and shakers are and who are the voices that need to be uh, listened to and who do you need to engage, those parks and recreation professionals oftentimes have that relationship already established and they are a gatekeeper to getting the right stakeholders um, and investors around the table. Um, if there's a community crisis in law enforcement, it's gonna take the Parks and Recreation Department and those relationships to bring that community together because there's already trust. There's already uh, experiential you know, time together that has, has made that a healthy environment to have good dialogue. So I think that, that that's probably for me the um, the the asset the the tool in the toolbox that is most um, aligned with our parks and recreation folks is relationships. Yeah, T. Mike, I'll take that a step further. I often hear parks professionals when talking about whether or not they would be interested in going into positions like ours say back to me, well, I don't do politics or I don't like politics. I, I challenge that. I think the Parks and Rec director is a political position. And I would just simply point to travel sports and your ability to manage that as a great example of how you are politicians. I mean, we, we have to deal with, in Parks and Recreation, we deal with community pressure and the politics of who gets to have space, who gets to have access to programs, who gets access to funding. Those are all political decisions. They are political decisions that a parks director is, is faced with on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. And where the parks director skill set comes in is the ability to, to, to manage all those interests, to manage all those divi divided um, and not always equal asks and, and be able to prioritize them. And so I, I would say, you know, and, and to your point, T. Michael, you know, we do know the movers and the shakers, and those people are the same movers and shakers in the parks as they are in City Hall, as they are in any in the Rotary Club, as they are in any other organization. So, you know, we have an inherent ability just by the nature of our of, of our experience to we can herd cats. I mean, who else in the community can herd cats besides the Parks and Rec director? And that's what politics is all about, trying to herd the cats. So I, I think you made a great point. Hey, Don, I, you know, it's kind of interesting in that is that it's not just um, the, the, the way that Eleanor had asked that question was, why do why do the wise leadership come to you to in Parks and Recreation to solve problems? How often when you were in many of us in parks and recreation positions that somebody from the private side, from the public side, wanted to know, Hey, how do we get something done? Or I want to, I want to do this. Who should I go to? 
that it becomes the conduit. It's the clearinghouse both up and down the communication ladder. Because again, it's they're, they're the people that you see. They're the people you engage with. Yeah, and I, I, can, I concur 100%. Uh, you know, we are the department that is most, I think, most, one of the most frequently in the public eye. And, and I mean, people are interacting regularly with our assets, with our staff, with our people. And we are the, if not, we are the signature asset of a community. And I think that that ability that we, we've gained from connecting with people and uh, engaging with the stakeholders, whether it be part, those that participate in our programs and our natural humbleness and ability to help and, um, you know, combined with our ability to build community, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we are, though, we're so used to making things happen in terms of running a program, creating a program, maintaining our parks. And I really think it's, it's those skills that help uh, those above us and even our elected officials gravitate to us for those outside the box assignments. Think of, of just this pandemic. How, think of our, you know, who do we gravitate to? What facilities did we have to use? A lot of the times it was in our parks and we, we are used to having those assignments. We are used to uh, interacting with people on a regular basis. And I think those are the, the reasons why we tend to get tasked with some of those unusual assignments. Oh, great points. Thanks for that input. So let's then kind of move to one of those conversations of if you knew then what you know now, how, what would you have done differently? So you all in your current seats uh, manage now several departments or divisions within your government structure, all with separate priorities, all with separate agendas. Now that you're in the seat that you're in, do you better understand why it might have been difficult when you were a Parks and Recreation Director to get the attention of your manager and what advice would you give to leaders in parks and recreation now? Um, how do you get that manager's attention um, for your priority when you all are managing 10 other priorities? Well, Eleanor, I think, I think first of all, that question depends upon who the manager is because that's certainly gonna influence what the tactic is. But I'll tell you, you asked the question, what do you, what do you wish you knew then what you know now? Um, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes you got to get up to 35,000 feet and look down and see how everything kind of functions. Um, when you're, when you're within the department, a lot of times the only thing you see is within the department. You, you fail to understand the systems dynamics of how all this stuff functions together. So what I wish I knew then, um, was, uh, the art of collaboration across departmental lines, the ability to see how partnerships between multiple departments on the same initiative uh, provide a much greater impact at the end of the day. Um, you know, we think back to the old, the old ads and, and campaigns about having the police department present the Parks and Recreation Department budget because they recognize the value of it. 
we've got to do is parks and recreation folks. I think our folks need to do more of that, that they need to understand when you want to get something done, you're better served if you have more than just you carrying that flag. And that doesn't mean your constituents, but when you can show the collaboration in the partnership with the police department and code compliance and planning and growth management, you know, whoever else needs to be involved and you're touting, not just the, the selfish benefit to your operation, but the unselfish benefit to the entire organization. That's, I think the, the best way to, to package that today. It can't be just, I'm going to spend X and I'm going to get Y. It's, I'm going to spend X and I'm going to get Y, but then I'm also going to get A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you know, so on and so on. That's, that's what I think managers are looking for. What's the greatest return on the investment and what's the ultimate impact of what you want to do? Uh, I agree wholeheartedly, Team Michael. And I, I actually hearken back to a couple, of th- a couple of times now that Tony has mentioned one of our greatest thank- strengths, which is uh, humbleness and humility. In this context, I think that is one of our greatest weaknesses. I, I, if I had known then that I could be more assertive as the parks director, that what I said and did um, should be listened to, and I insisted on it, I suspect I would have gotten further with other departments, gotten further with my city manager. Um, I really, I don't want to say that I let folks walk all over me, um, because that's not the case. I'm all, I was always glad to be that person who could pick up that special project nobody else would do. I was always happy about doing that, but my humbleness would not allow me to go to the city manager and say, we've got this going on, parks and recreation needs to be at the table because we've got this value to add. T. Michael gave a shout out to his current parks director, I'll do the same thing. Tara Petty, who I hired to replace me, has the ability to do that, partly because she served uh, in administration in the past, and so she has a great understanding of the value that that brings to the table. Um, but but I would encourage any professional um, at the parks director level or even below that to be more self-confident that you matter and that your opinion matters and that you should feel free to express it um, any opportunity you get. You're not going to be listened to if you never actually speak up. Absolutely. And I think, I think one of the, the key points is you know, as directors, um, we can kind of think our, of ourselves operating in an island of sorts at times. And I think we really need to take the time to build a relationship with your manager and, and especially other department heads. Um, and, and I think if, if, if you do that and, you know, I like to say be prepared and, and especially when I have department heads come to me, be prepared and, and, Try to be efficient with with your manager's time. Um, uh, don't be shy of having this ongoing wish list of items and make sure you share them regularly, not only uh, when you're one on one with the manager, but if you're in a, in a department head meeting, share your vision, share your priorities. That's why you're at the table. Um, uh, we have, again, that opportunity to I, I like to say we, we have the opportunity to look at things from a user's perspective. I think we're very good at, at doing that from in a in a in a parks role. We so when we look at whether it be a, a stormwater project or a, a roadway project, we have the ability to contribute to those those projects as well. 
um, and we shouldn't be shy about doing those. So I concur 100% um, with, with what Don and T. Michael have been saying is, is you know, we can't be shy. We, we have a lot to contribute. And, um, and if we're at the table, uh, let's make sure that we make that contribution known uh, because we have that ability to, to make those improvements community-wide. Gina, what do you have to add to this wise conversation? So I agree that uh, planning is key. Uh, making sure that you know what it is that you need. We don't. We certainly don't know. Um, and reinforcing that message often makes a lot of sense. Uh, I guess one of the things that I am a little wiser now than I was then is listening to the entire board meeting conversation because it's interesting the little nuggets that you find out that, hey, this department is doing that and parks can contribute or benefit somehow from whatever a sister department is doing. And I try real hard to keep in constant communication with my folks to just let them know, hey, I heard a commissioner was making a derogatory comment about this program or project. So what can we do to, you know, put a better foot forward on that thing? Or, you know, I heard that this is a strategic goal of the board. And what is it that my departments can do to contribute to the board's goals? So whenever you also kind of keep in mind uh, things that are bigger than your departments, your areas of responsibility, and how you contribute to the entire puzzle, that's certainly helpful with getting your priorities funded and accomplished. So it sounds like knowing your manager is critically important. Um, you know, your cities, towns, counties are fortunate um, because their former Parks and Recreation Director is now on that executive leadership team. But for those directors who don't have someone who's familiar with Parks and Recreation, critically important to know your manager, know what their priorities are, know what their interests are, know the challenges of the entire community and how you can help solve some of those challenges. You know, for years, we have talked about government being the experts at putting entities within our government structure in silos. This is your job. This is what you do. Um, and then for years, we've talked about the critical need to break those silos down so that we have everybody working together, bringing their specific talents and resources to kind of resolve some of these community challenges. I think you've all hit on it at some point in our previous uh, conversations that with everything going on today in the world, um, which impacts, impacts us all at our community level, it's even more important for parks and recreation to be part of that community solution. And we're well poised just by who we are. Um, those people who are passionate and focused on human and humanity and the best of our communities. So I want to kind of ask each one of you, are you, are you still seeing um, department heads underneath you really wanting to be confined to their silos? And if that's happening, how do you as a leader really kind of break those silos down and um, really encourage those underneath you to work with their other um, counterparts within your structure to really look at the big picture of your community. It's interesting, Eleanor, because I had heard talk of the silos for years, but as I was the parks director, 
I didn't feel it as much as I do as the city manager now where I see it firsthand because I'm witness to all the departments on a fairly regular basis. So it's much more pronounced now for me as city manager um, and and the, the obstacles that that creates is also more pronounced for me. I, I will say that I see this to some degree as a generational issue. I, I see my older um, department heads or my older executives being more comfortable in their silos. And I see my younger leadership being less comfortable in those silos. So it's an interesting kind of a push and pull right now. I will, I will say that, you know, my role is to try to encourage those silos to be broken down, you know, whenever possible. And, and my strategy for doing that is just to simply force it. Unfortunately, there's no magic solution, but if I'm in a meeting where I could tell that one of the perspectives is not being heard, I'll say, well, why isn't the police chief at the table for this one? Why isn't the public works director here? Why haven't we got somebody from De- development services having this conversation as well? Um, so that's that's kind of my approach of trying to resolve it. But I will also caution, particularly those who are in uh, management level positions within departments, that I'm more conscious of, of the parks department being siloed now than I was when I was the parks director. Um, so I see the silo happening kind of as I'm looking back into the department now and wishing to the point earlier about what I would do differently then if I knew better is I would be more conscious of the silos happening, the parks and the rec silo or the aquatics and the program silo. I wish I had more intent to break those things down when I had the opportunity to do so as a director. So good advice to a parks and recreation director. Don't let those silos be created within your own department um, because that ends up really kind of depleting um, that natural ability for us all to offer those services that Tony, I think you mentioned earlier as well. Um, Tony, how do you as a leader make sure your your folks aren't in those silos? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, chiming in to, to that concept of siloing within your department, I think it's, it's also... Um, a lot of times, uh, as parks department uh, managers, we may feel that that we get isolated from other departmental projects. But at the same time, ask yourself: Are you inviting other departments to the table on your projects? Make sure that that you're doing the same as well, and, and build that consensus. But I think that's where where really our parks training and background has helped, at least from my perspective. We have that that building consensus and and ability and, and engaging the community. And I think, you know, I, I like to always use and pick a capital project and, and share that with, with our team because I, I try to share no matter which department you're in, whether it be in finance or building, you're going to have a little piece of that project and, and you're going to be a part of that project one way or another, even if it's the person just cutting the checks to pay the vendors, right? They, they, they are contributing to basically this community changing um, uh, project. And, you know, I like to use stormwater as, as, a, as an example. I, I try to say, you know, the stormwater improvement is not just to fix the storm drains. It's an opportunity to provide a new environment to the community. And that means, you know, our, from the parks department, trees, landscaping should be involved, transportation, your bike lanes, is there an opportunity to do that? What about our sidewalks with our public works department? Um, are there any other improvements that could be made to create a brand new experience 
And ultimately that brings all these other departments together to interact with each other. So I think the key for me is to help everyone understand that they play a role in creating that overall community experience. And I'd like to just uh, jump up to a more global level because city residents are county residents. And so from that perspective, it's like, don't always think that it's just your department that needs to do it alone. Can your sister city help with whatever the logistics are? And so sometimes, yes, we have our internal silos, but we also have our external silos. And what can we do to leverage those resources? So one of the things that came to my mind in Alachua County, tourism is a county department, but um, can parks contact them? And for example, we want to put out a new parks brochure, maybe tourism would help fund it because that's something that can be distributed to those coming to visit your area. And even better yet, does it just need to be your city's parks or can it be all the cities in your community as well as your county parks all in that same brochure? So just something, you know, and that might be a lot to coordinate, but again, thinking more globally, breaking down silos from even exterior sources. I tell you where they got a lot of silos is like the Midwest, Kansas, um, Nebraska. There's like every cornfield you're going to find silos. It's crazy. Um, I guess oranges and citrus and stuff don't do as well in silos in Florida. Um, you know, I'll go back to the conversation. We The theme of this thing is about being humble. And I so I think in Parks and Recreation, there's not, there's not a lot of internal silos, many silos between recreation and athletics and parks because we're always too proud to ask for more when we when we don't have enough resources what do we do we borrow from one of our internal divisions or work units and we share amongst them and so there's not an opportunity for silos um, that's kind of our own fault but that's maybe a blessing from it I think they do exist every day in other departments uh, I think in our paramilitaristic operations and police and fire you know it, Try and get a police officer and a firefighter to work together. You know, that's like bathing a cat. It's just, you're going to get cut. You're going to get scratched. It's going to be ugly, but you got to, you got to find a way to do it. And, um, you know, you just got to push that stuff. Don, you said it well. Sometimes you guys got to force it. You know, sometimes you just got to say, okay, we're taking these people from this area and these people from this area and you're going to work together and you're going to come up with something better. Um, so many of us are focused on, in inclusivity and diversity initiatives right now and what's the what's the number one thing that people talk about about when you have a diverse workforce is that they're more creative they're more productive they come up with better solutions to everyday problems well some of that diversity isn't just about what we look like or you know male female or you know where we're from or any of those things it's also what departments and what parts of the organization we represent and sometimes the problems that our parks and recreation directors are facing and their operations, they're too close to solve. And they've got to get somebody outside the department to look at it. Just the same as when code compliance is trying to deal with an issue in a neighborhood, maybe they need to be looking to our folks for some insight and answers. After all, go back to what I said before, we've got the relationship with the residents. You know, how can how can that intel help other parts of the organization? So, you know, I think um, I think there's silos that are always going to be there, but there's a way to work around them. Um, and certainly, 
as, as everybody said, we got to break them down if they do exist within that particular department of parks and recreation and leisure. Do you find that as leaders, it's often a tool that you have to pull out of your toolbox um, to put those who might be hesitant to get out of their silo and to work with others to, as a leader, that you intentionally have to put people in an uncomfortable situation before they see the benefit of that situation and working together? Or have you have during your tenure in your positions, have you ever found that a useful tool to kind of force that level of uncomfort? I think it's not just about, I don't like to say you force a level of uncomfort, but sometimes I think you've got to, you've got to create the relationship for them. You've got to bring, I mean, you got to bring people together and say, Hey, Tom, have you met Bob? You know, this is what you have in common. This is where you may be able to help each other and create, you know, create the room in which the relationship can develop. You know, it had, you can't, I can't force Don and Tony to like each other, but I can at least get them into the same space where they can decide, are they going to like each other? If they don't ever have the chance to get to know each other, then the answer is always going to be no. But I think that that's probably more more so how do we create opportunity for teams to form um and i think if you do that enough then the members of those teams and people that want to be members of those teams organically start to form their own work teams to solve problems sometimes you have to kind of get the ball rolling but i think once you do and people see the results of that it becomes organic to Michael, I'll add that I think one of the sort of unanticipated benefits of the pandemic was the value of being together to work um, on anything, I think has been sort of realized again. I remember when we, we went completely virtual by the end of March of the first year, literally everybody was at home except for myself and a couple of, you know, city clerk, a couple of key staff people. And early on, we were already having conversations of, wow, this could be the new way of doing things. We might just be virtual forever. We might never go back to the office. It was interesting for me to hear as the weeks turned into months and the months turned into well over a year, the staff expressing their interest in getting back in large part because they wanted to have these relationships face-to-face -face at work again that they felt they were missing. Not that we weren't all productive at home, but there's so much value in the water cooler conversation in the, you know, lunch trips with colleagues. And so, uh, you know, that dynamic absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think we're realizing that we were, we were missing something uh, by taking advantage of this technology. We thought it was all great early on, but now we all would like to throw out the window. Could it be true that absence makes the heart grow fonder? of our coworkers, maybe, I know I hated working at home. I thrive on that energy and synergy of walking down the hall and throwing out an idea and having somebody either roll their eyes at me or say, that's great, let's make that happen. So Don, I think you hit a nail on a head there that, um, you know, as leaders, it made it, 
I think, more difficult to really make sure that your team was maintaining that level of cohesiveness. Um, I heard people at our annual conference recently say, oh my gosh, it's so good to see you out of your box. <laughs> and they meant like the Zoom box. Um, oh, I didn't realize that's what you looked like from the shoulders down. So I think some of that human relations piece of it and connectivity really is what kind of got depleted with everyone working at home. Um, I, you all, I know your time is so precious and I can only imagine that you rarely get the pleasure of working an eight hour work day or a 40 hour work week and that you're probably called upon for a lot of after hour weekend responsibilities. So let's talk work-life balance. I want to know from each of you all how you're maintaining that work-life balance. And, and is the stress of work really a faucet that you can turn on and off when you go home and turn it back on when you come into the office? Tony, you're in Oregon for a conference. Granted, not on personal time, but it has to do your soul some good just to get out of your everyday environment. Talk to us about work-life balance. Yeah, so, um, you know, for me, uh, it really has to do with setting boundaries and um, making sure that they're firm, especially when we're talking about between work and life. You know, I think... Um, probably earlier in my career, it was less and, and, um, that faucet was always on, uh, and, uh, you know, it was a little bit more challenging to, to, to tend to turn it off. But as, as, uh, time has gone on, I've, I've learned that it's important to have those boundaries. And, you know, even if it means, uh, for me, I, I, I have to schedule most things a lot of times and then tell people at work and, you know, Hey, uh, this is lifetime or, or this is what I'm, I'm working out. Uh, you know, this is, this is what I'm going to be leaving work and make sure I communicate those boundaries to, to people at work. So they understand. Um, and, uh, just like you mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm at a conference now and everyone knows and make sure that the team knows. And, um, I think it's, it's important that, that those boundaries be communicated, um, both in your work life and, and in your in your personal life. Uh, and also, I think another important part is the ability to say no uh, and say it nicely at times uh, to things, especially things that, you know, can possibly or potentially eat up your time. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of different priorities, uh, it's important that you know where to balance where your time goes. So um, being able to say no nicely at times is, is critical. I 100% agree with that perspective. Um, I think I'm blessed with having a really great understanding boss. And if I have something going on with the kids, she's very understanding of that. Um, there's often times when I'm in a meeting and my husband will call, you know, even while recording this podcast, it's like, sorry, in a meeting, please text. And likewise, you know, with my staff too, it's like, sorry, I'm doing something with my kids' school, please text. So it kind of goes, both ways, but uh, making sure that you do take time for yourself because we don't work eight to five or nine to five. It's weekends, evenings, you know, things happen whenever something literally is on fire, you got to deal with it. And that's just the, the level of responsibility that we signed up for. But um, 
I think everybody is very understanding that we work a lot of hours and sometimes we just need to put that to the side and it's still important, but family is a priority too. I don't know. I don't know how you guys are ever turn it off. I'm going to have to take a lesson. Um, <laughs> I think I probably am the worst person in the world to speak about work-life balance. Um, they say the first step in, is admitting you have a problem. So I've got a problem. <laughs> but I think that's because we care, you know, it, I can tell you, I, we joke about this, my wife and, and I all the time. I can tell you the best restaurants that are 30 miles away from our home. Because if we want to go out and have time, that's where we have to go. Because if I go to Publix this evening and push a cart down whatever aisle, I'm going to come across somebody. Well, everybody's a resident, you know, at some level um, or a customer. But you're going to come across somebody that's going to have a question for you. You know, you go to church on Sunday and someone says, hey, I've been meaning to call you or you go to a sporting event. I had a question for you. And so it's always there. I don't think you can turn it off because I think you're always in the the response mode and you're always in the I want to help. I want to be able to provide the most exceptional service at my level is an example of the ambassador of the organization so that if somebody says, Hey, I, I saw the deputy city manager and he asked me a question or I had a question for him. He was able to deal with me right then or I called him. Yeah, it's just this. I don't know. It's a it's an ambition. It's a goal. It's a, an illness. I don't know what it is, but it's hard to turn it off. Um, you know, I think there's there's nights that you don't sleep because you're constantly thinking about stuff at work. You're caring about your employees. Um, you're You're trying to do the most that you can. And you do have to find something that becomes the outlet. Otherwise, you'll go insane, whether it's you know, exercise or it's uh, reading or it's you know, just some quiet time and thought. So you have to find something for you before you can even find it for your family. Because if you don't, then you're going to just take it all to your family and that's no good. So you've got to find a way to at least turn the volume down but the music never stops playing. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've had a lot of people since I've only been city manager now a couple of years, but I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, it must be terrible all the time you have to spend away from your family and all the calls you get on the weekends. And I, I look at them and I say, listen, I was the parks director before I was the city manager. That was my life for 18 years. I will, I will be completely honest with you. I have more physical time with my family now as a city manager than I ever had as the director of parks and recreation. I was at every single event for 18 years before the event started through the event all the way until we cleaned up from the event. Um, so when I don't have to be at every movie night, although I go to many of them and I don't have to be at every puppet show and every race for my family, I think my wife would say to, to you, why didn't you do this sooner? Um, because I did miss some very critical years of my children growing up, um, particularly the years when they were no longer interested in going to events, but they weren't quite out of the house yet. Um, there were some critical years and time that I missed. Now, that being said, I, I thought the Tony made a good point about, you know, scheduling your time and making sure you put a priority on your, your, your personal time. What I do is I have a very candid conversation with the elected officials as soon as 
they are getting elected into office or when I became city manager, I said, listen, you will have my undivided attention 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I understand what this job is like. I get it. I'll be there to pick up the phone. I said, however, if my family has something that they need, if I get an urgent text, an urgent call, I'm going to go to them and I will come back to you immediately. And I set that stage early on. And I think the elected officials respect that. Furthermore, when, when we're not in emergency mode with my family, I am very responsive. It, it's the one thing I preach in the city 24 hours a day, seven days a week is responsiveness. In fact, I had a public evaluation of my performance last night, um, which is, if you've never gone through that, good for you, because there's nothing exciting about that. Um, however, one of the elected officials said something kind of in jest, but it kind of underscores this. He said, you know, Mr. Decker is very responsive and the times that he doesn't pick up the phone when he calls me back 18 seconds later to apologize that he couldn't take my call, that speaks volumes. And, and that's what I try to do. I, I, I practice my responsiveness so that those times when I cannot give them the attention first, they understand there's a reason for it um, and they will give me the benefit of the doubt. Hey listener, it's Nathan Allman at Rep Services. There's been so much change this past year, but one thing has stayed the same. People need parks. After the COVID lockdown, communities value public spaces more than ever, and Rep Services is here to help you create great places in a fun, sustainable, and honorable way. I personally want to thank all FRPA members who continue to trust Rep Services with your playground, shade, shelter, and site furnishing projects. Whether it's a new park project or replacement parts, Rep Services is here to help. To see what we've been up to, check us out at www.repservices.com or on our Instagram page at RepServicesFL. If you still want to learn more about us, reach out to me directly at Nathan at RepServices.com. Now, let's get back to the show. As you all know, FRPA's strategic plan is founded on four pillars, health, environment, community building, and economic impact. We're going to ask each of our panelists to address one of these um, areas. So Dawn, we're going to take you first. A common challenge for communities across the country uh, is addressing mental health and wellness, both the immediate need of responding to mental health crises and then trying to get ahead of those so that we can posture ourselves in a more preventive approach. What are you seeing in your community or hearing from counterparts around the state and the country as far as mental health goes? And, and how do you see your community bringing your assets together to kind of address the mental health issues? Well, I am much more in tune to this right now. And I think the pandemic has really shown a light um, on, on this problem, but I'm not even sure if we know the immensity of it and we may not know for several years to come. I, I, I'll give you an example, just real quick. We were talking to our school guidance counselor the other day, we'd sent her an email asking for some assistance with an issue with our daughter, she told us she was apologizing for not getting back to us right away because she had 120 emails over the weekend from parents who have concerns like ours that she's trying to juggle. She's one guidance counselor of like 10. So multiply that by 10. And there's, you know, literally hundreds, if not thousands of children right now, specifically who are dealing with 
something likely as a result of the pandemic. And of course, adults are experiencing similar situations, if not more so. So the one thing that is of comfort to me is that government does not have to provide all the answers, but has the ability to bring people together in a way to attach it from a community perspective. And I think Parks and Recreation for something like this is one of the great places to start. Not that we're looking to dump something on Parks and Rec just to add to their pile of things to do, but the reality is they are connected with all the entities already who can help bridge this problem. Uh, they have relationships with our schools. They have relationships with our service organizations. They have relationships with the with the demographics themselves, whether it's the senior club or youth organizations or whatnot. And so I don't think the city or the parks director has to have the answers on how we fix what I think is a, a, a looming mental health crisis, specifically as a result of the pandemic. But we can bring everybody together um, to get that conversation going because everybody can have a piece of the solution, whether it's from the YMCA or the schools or whatnot. So I, I think our platform is best utilized to, to bring everybody together. Because what, what I think we don't realize is when the city puts its weight behind something, it leads credibility to it that may not exist if the Y is trying to tackle it them by themselves, the school tackling it by themselves. When the city gives credibility to it, um, it, it it is more earnestly considered both by those groups that who are inviting in and from the audience who are trying to speak to. So I really think that's going to be our role in, in the years ahead. Great. And, you know, I, we've heard for years about parks and recreation being the great conveners, um, bringing people together um, for the good of the community. So I think this addressing this is going to be um, a requirement that we're all going to have to get comfortable with in the next few years. Um, Tony, we're going to hand off to you next. Uh, we've heard throughout the years in many conversations the comment that we aren't growing any more land. So the need to protect what we can from development is critical. Although we know Florida is a state that depends on growth, whether that's development, income tax, sales tax, property taxes. Share with us your thoughts being from an urban area in South Florida. How do we balance necessary growth with environmental responsibility and sustainability? And, and what are you doing in your community to create that environmentally responsible vision? Yeah, and especially in, in South Florida, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's rampant in terms of ongoing development and not only development, redevelopment in areas uh, um, where density and increasing density is now becoming uh, a priority for a lot of developers. Uh, and it's an issue facing us and in, not only in, let's say, our respective community, but also understand the impacts of the development that's happening in communities around your community is also another important factor when we're looking at things such as traffic impacts and looking at impacts to our, our schools um, and our infrastructure. I mean, these are all things that uh, we have to keep in mind and um, parks plays a, a crucial role here. And I think um, understanding the developers, I think is key. Uh, we have to be able to engage developers, especially when we're talking about impacts to our infrastructure, our parks, 
especially as we're talking about developing any type of environmental sustainability planning. If you're not having those stakeholders involved and part of that discussion, it's, it's, uh, they're not going to understand our goals and you're not going to be able to understand their goals clearly. Uh, especially many developers, many uh, of these entities, they do have corporate social responsibility goals that they need to meet. And I think it's, it's incredibly important that we understand those coming from the public sector, uh, especially when we're looking at land development codes and how we plan our growth for the future. If we are in tune with their goals and understand their language and what they're trying to achieve, hopefully we'll be able to develop a, a, a plan statewide and even all the way down to a local level. All of our, our plans around sustainability We'll incorporate some of those goals within them. So for us, we're really looking at uh, developing an overall sustainability master plan, uh, one that's going to cover all aspects of community operations and future growth in our community. Uh, and we should also be looking at park opportunities across all of our assets, uh, our roadways. I, I love to tell people that our right-of-ways provide a great opportunity to provide a park experience in front of almost every home if you plan it correctly. So I think um, having that type of engagement is critical and key uh, to how we develop and grow as a state and, and our development as a state um, and also all the way down to our Great. Gina, we're going to turn to you. Uh, when we consider what's happening in society today, and several of you all have made reference to this in our conversations earlier but the conflicts that are inherently happening between diverse populations, diverse political views that seem to be uh, becoming more and more evident. How are you addressing those challenges in Alachua County? And is there a role that you can see that Parks and Recreation has in really intentionally bringing people together and building or even rebuilding that sense of community to kind of take the focus off of what makes us different and focus on what makes us the same. So one of the initiatives that Alachua County kicked off a couple of years ago was required diversity and inclusion training for all of our staff. And the thing that really resonated with me with that training is on the cover, there were different kinds of shoes. And I'm sure if each of us on this uh, podcast right now looks down at our shoes. They all look very different. I have to assume my shoes look different than Eleanor's and T. Michael's and Don's. And we all have shoes, but they're different. And so we have to recognize and appreciate that everybody has a place. Everybody has something to contribute. And it's not just, for example, inviting people to the dance, it's asking them to dance. So especially in our parks and through this whole COVID situation, whenever we couldn't get together for holidays as families, whenever we couldn't you know, shop as we traditionally have in, in the publics, people were still connecting at a socially distanced uh, way in our, in our parks. And I think that our traffic counts were higher than they normally are. And that's because people still do have a desire to get together and engage with each other. So our parks are just critical for that kind of thing, you know, and I really hope that if there is some silver lining from this COVID is that our parks are necessary infrastructure 
They, they bring people together. They help people connect with each other, disconnect from technology. That's what it's about. Great. And that's so much about what we've talked about for years is really creating that public sense of awareness and value of those parks and those playgrounds and those athletic fields. And we really, I think it's a natural human nature to forget how much we value those things until we don't have access to them or until they're taken away. So I definitely think we've seen over and over again in history, um, if we go back to September the 11th, I remember the research showed that the number one place that people went after September 11th in New York was Central Park because they wanted to feel safe. They wanted to feel connected. They wanted to feel, um, you know, a sense of, of better good for the community. So Gina, I think your comments are spot on. And I think COVID has definitely uh, reinforced that with us as well. T. Michael, you, a few years ago, assisted FRPA in developing our impact tool, uh, which came after years of conversations about how do we tell the story of parks and recreation using that hard economic data um, to really demonstrate to decision makers and citizens alike um, how we tell that story of the impact of parks and recreation. Economic development is obviously a huge priority for any community right now, whether that is enticing new businesses to relocate, whether that's increasing opportunities for things that attract tourism, whether that's enhancing the events that we've already done. How critical is it, in your opinion, to be able to, number one, measure the impact of what we do, and number two, to communicate that impact to decision makers and citizens? Yeah, you know, I'm going to take it from a little different angle, maybe. I think that, you know, we talked earlier about silos and, you know, do you have a seat at the table on the conversations that matter and, you know, how do we how do we break down those silos where they exist? And I think on the economic development side of things, that's one in particular. So let me kind of twist it to the point of infrastructure, the great bureaucratic term that everybody loves to throw around. So you're trying to recruit new business to your community. Maybe it's industrial, maybe it's manufacturing, maybe it's you know large scale retail, whatever. They want infrastructure. They want to make sure you've got good roads, good water, good sewer, good power. Nowadays they want good fiber. Um, because they've got to sell everything they do online as well. They also look to what is the human infrastructure elements. So what is your park system? What is your recreational aspects that you have? Because while they can build the box to put all the stuff in, they've also got to employ all the workers. And what's going to bring the workers to the area? What's the quality of life that's going to cause me to relocate from community A to community B to chase a job? If I don't have good quality of life infrastructure to attract you know, workers, it's going to be hard to do that. And I think that that's a piece that we've got to do a better job of selling, especially now when we are fighting against so many other communities for landing new businesses, um, especially large manufacturing companies. They want to know, you know, okay, I can come here and I got the land to build. Can I get the workforce? Well, what's going to either attract or detract the workforce from being here? And the parks and recreation aspect, the quality of life really comes into play with that. Second piece of that is, it's economic development isn't just about, you know, new business coming to town. Tony talked about, you know, uh, 
uh, redevelopment. That's certainly a big piece. But there's also just the the uh, the transient nature of our of our workforce today. How many people can live wherever they want and work remotely? So what do we need to have to make us attractive for that? To build that housing capacity, to build you know our population bases may grow without ever adding new jobs into the area. But if I can land 500 employees who are going to work remotely and they want to live here, that's the best thing going because they're going to live here, they're going to earn here, and they're going to spend here. But their corporate headquarters or their place of business is someplace else. How do I get them to want to live here? I've got to provide them a walkable, safe, recreation-oriented community that's going to give them all the things that they want to do when they're not at work. And so I think that that is another thing that we've got to have a better conversation on and be able to tell the story better on. Um, and then you asked about metrics. You know, how do you measure impact? And that's a tough one. I, I still, you know, after 30 years doing this, I still don't have my arms around that. Um, I think you can go to any tourism group, any sports marketing group, any, you know, consultants out there, and they're going to give you a number of how you measure economic impact. But it's so subjective. And it's so, you know, you can you can twist the numbers to say whatever it is you want to say. I think at the end of the day, you have to look at what's real. You have to look at what is the customer feedback? What is the citizen feedback? What does, because if, if you can be bringing in all the money in the world, but if in the process you're angering every one of your residents because they can't get to your beach or they can't get to your rec center or they can't use your ball fields, what's the benefit? You've got a lot of money coming in and a lot of unhappy residents. So there's a balance that has to happen there between what's the dollar value that's coming in, but what's also the community response to that? Are they happy with what you're doing? Uh, do they do they support what you're doing? It can't just be, hey, you know, spring training brings an economic impact of X million dollars. There has to be the community support for that has to be validated and, and communicated somehow as well. I haven't figured that one out, but. I think that when we talk about impact, the testimonies, you know, the, the, the communication back from the businesses to the elected body to say, we love what you're doing, do more of it. Uh, you're keeping our employees employed. You're keeping our cash registers ringing. You know, for every dollar that's spent in our restaurant, in our hotel, in our retail, you know, the multiplier is seven. It's going to transfer seven hands before it leaves this community. We need to do more of that. We've got to get it can't just be a number on a page. There has to be a testimonial and a, uh, a third party that's validating that force is a, is a business owner or a constituent. Excellent. Gosh, you guys, our time is running short and I have so much more I want to talk to you about. Um, I see a part two on the horizon with you guys, um, or at least a conversation in the coffee bar at conference to continue to hear some of, of your thoughts. Um, in closing, so our listeners can really get a feel for you all, um, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. You're limited in time. You have to give me a very quick response. And so our listeners can know who's responding how. We're going to go in this order on all of these questions. T. Michael, you'll be up first. Gina, you'll be up second. Don, you'll be up third. And Tony, you will wrap it up. 
So here we go. Are you ready? T. Michael, what keeps you up at night? A, a 10-year-old daughter, three barking dogs, and whatever the flavor of the day is at work. Gina. Thinking, thinking, just whatever's going on in my mind from work. Don. I think concern for my staff's uh, safety and their health, whether it's police and fire or just generally an active shooter situation in a park or a public building. That's something I think about a lot. Tony. Just thinking about what's next. Great. T. Michael, what book have you read lately? Uh, best book I've read lately is, um, well, right now I'm reading Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People, exceptional book, and Devil in the Grove by uh, oh, Gilbert King. Uh, great historical perspective on Lake County. Gina. Just started reading 1984. Which is a good year. Don. Uh, most recent book was a book called The Servant Leader, um, which kind of reinforces exactly who we are, but expounds on it. Uh, I think a lot of the folks in Parks and Rec would appreciate that book. Tony. Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss. Ooh, that sounds interesting. All right, Team Michael, best or your favorite leadership quote and who said it? Got two of them. One is I Never Learned Anything While I Was Talking by Larry King and uh, Walt Whitman. Be curious, not judgmental. Excellent. Gina. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that's by Maya Angelou. Don. Well, those that know me won't be surprised. My favorite is a Disney quote, and it's, you can dream, create, design, and build the most wonderful place in the world, but it requires people to make the dream a reality. Tony. A leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we did it ourselves. And that's by uh, Lao Tzu, a Chinese philosopher. Well, now my favorite is Tony's favorite. I like that one. <laughs> Tony, we're going to have to get that from you later so we can publish that somewhere. That was very profound. T. Michael, what is the best piece of motivational advice you can give listeners in five words or less? Focus on getting it right, not being right. Sorry, that's more than five. Tina. You can't follow the instructions. <laughs> I can't follow instructions either. Mine is six. Establish priorities and get to work. Don. I can follow directions. Mine is do the uncomfortable. Mm. Tony? Listen first, speak second. Great. I think my grandmother told me that on many occasions. <laughs> so our wrap-up question, T. Michael, what are you most hopeful about? The good in people. Gina? Tomorrow. None of us has promised tomorrow, so it's up to us to make today special and memorable, invest in others, and pay it forward. Don. All right. Mine's going to be slightly longer and I do apologize, but I remember when I came into this profession, the park's motto was the benefits are endless. And we were all trying to identify what the benefits were. There were names slapped up on a board and we were all, in fact, I think my very first interview, I was asked to list the benefits. Today, we have concrete benefits. I mean, the four pillars to me are solid, you know, economic development, health, uh, community building. Uh, environment. I mean, those are solid. I think I think we finally put a name to those benefits, and they are going to sustain us in the future. I'm very hopeful about that. Tony? To me, a healthier, greener future and the future of our profession, our state, our communities, and ultimately the world. Wow. 
On that positive note, I want to thank our panelists again for their time, their wisdom, and most of all, for your continued dedication and commitment to enhancing the way of life for all Floridians. Please join us on our next episode of Park Spark. Thank you for listening to Park Spark. For more information about the Florida Recreation and Park Association, please visit frpa.org.